Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and protection of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode. And if you have a moment, please rate and review our podcast. The summer of 2022 is already the second hottest summer in Nashville on record. And it's not over yet. Urban areas like Nashville experience a phenomenon known as the urban heat island effect, which means temperatures are higher in the city than in surrounding rural areas. Vulnerable residents, such as children and the elderly, are at risk of heat illness when temperatures rise. Hot days aren't just a nuisance. They're dangerous. While it's not always talked about, there are more heat-related deaths in the United States than deaths from floods, tornadoes, lightning, hurricanes, and blizzards combined. The hottest parts of the city are areas that lack trees and green spaces, which naturally cool us down. Nashville is one of 14 cities in the U.S. participating in an urban heat mapping campaign this summer. Community scientists from across Nashville will have the opportunity to participate in the campaign to map hotspots across the city by driving predetermined routes with sensors attached to their cars. The data will show the warmest and coolest spots in our city to help inform heat mitigation efforts by city public health and environmental officials, nonprofits, urban planners, urban foresters, and researchers. In this episode of River Talks, we are joined by some representatives from the planning committee to talk about urban heat and the campaign. You'll hear from Chrissy Hurley, the meteorologist in charge at the National Weather Service office in Nashville, Tennessee, Dr. Kendra Abkowitz, chief sustainability and resilience officer with the office of Mayor John Cooper in the city of Nashville, Mikhail Houghton, executive director of the Cumberland River Compact, Carol Ziegler, professor of nursing at Vanderbilt University's School of Nursing and co-founder of the Climate, Health, and Energy Equity Lab at the Wondery, and Dr. David Paget, associate professor of geography from Tennessee State University. Well, thank you all for joining us today to talk about heat. So obviously in the city of Nashville, Every summer it gets hot, especially this past summer. I think a lot of people have heat on their mind, but what does it really look like when we're talking about heat? So Chrissy, tell us what exactly is the science around the extreme heat that we're experiencing? How hot is it in Nashville and why has it been so hot? Well, it's been so hot because we've had a ridge of high pressure pretty much sitting over the Eastern half of the United States where we haven't had much in the way of any kind of big time low pressure systems or tropical weather systems impacting the weather across the area. So when you have high pressure and you don't have too many um, systems coming in with any kind of significant rainfall events, your temperature is gonna go up. In fact, uh, in the meteorology community, we like to call this the death ridge because you just have this high pressure just takes hold and it tends to camp out. Not, not much can happen as far as weather patterns um, to, to break that up. And since this high pressure set up camp so early in the summer, 
we have definitely felt the impacts of such a hot summer. In fact, we had 28 days of temperatures 90 degrees or above. And that's just through, you know, mid-July. That is the fifth longest streak we've ever had as far as how many days we've had over 90 degrees. So it's definitely been a hot summer. We hit 100 degrees um, earlier last month. And that has, that we haven't seen the triple digit mark since 2012. So it's been some time since we had, you know, such a, a big time, you know, summertime heat wave. And with the rest of July, August and September to go, it looks like more of the same as expected. So it's definitely not just us making it up that it's been very, very hot. There is a lot of science that goes behind that it has been a hot summer. Um, so how hot has it been this summer? The summer isn't even over yet. What are we looking at with this summer? Well, you know, so far, if summer ended today, right? So, so we didn't have the rest of July, August, September to go through. This would be the second hottest summer ever recorded in Nashville. And that just blows my mind. The second hottest summer. And we haven't even gotten to our climatologically highest temperature days either, which is typically in August. So we've already seen that the, the warmest summer, um, you know, second warmest summer ever recorded. I think the first one was in 1952, if anybody remembers that hot summer. Um, what, why has it made it, what's made it so uncomfortable? Why, why have temperatures been so hot? Well, I'll tell you, one of the biggest things is we're not getting much of relief in the overnight hour. So when we have a temperature, you know, say in the mid upper 90s for high temperature and our low temperature only gets to 80 degrees or upper 70s, it doesn't really give us a chance to fully recover. And when you get into the city such as Nashville, that's where the urban heat island can really have a huge impact because it's gonna be a lot warmer at nighttime in the city than out in rural locations where you don't have as much hustle and bustle going on. And so when we say, you know, at the National International Airport, you know, high temperature was 95, the low was, you know, 78, it's probably a few degrees warmer in the urban areas such as downtown Nashville than out at the International Airport. Yeah, that urban heat island effect takes, you know, a hot Tennessee climate and just amplifies it even more. And one way that I always sort of explain this to people is if you are driving from, you know, straight down north, south through Davidson County, take a look at your car's temperature reader and see what it says when you're maybe down in Brentwood, sort of entering into Nashville, you get into that downtown Nashville corridor driving on 65, and it might climb four or five degrees. And that's just your car's thermometer, which is of course not particularly sensitive. And then maybe as you get further north, it's going to drop again. So the urban heat island effect definitely takes sort of our extreme weather and extreme heat and makes that even worse. Um, what is it about our cities? What, how our cities are built that cause that urban heat? I would say, you know, when you look at heat, heat is the number one weather related killer in the country. And these, these heat related illnesses and fatalities generally happen in the bigger cities with the urban heat island. And I think it's a lot to do with, you know, the lack of 
of grass and trees and um, you know you have mostly buildings and concrete and asphalt and so you know the air doesn't get uh, a good opportunity to cool down as much like say in rural locations of the county. Yeah absolutely and and all of that pavement all of that you know those buildings that can make it hot you feel it when you walk outside it's got a name it's that urban heat island effect. Um, now, one of the exciting things is that Nashville is doing an urban heat mapping project, which is kind of what brought all of us together here. And so uh, this campaign will be helping us understand a little bit more about Nashville's urban heat. So, uh, Kendra, could you tell us a little bit about what that mapping campaign will look like here in Nashville? Absolutely. Thanks, Catherine. And um, again, I just want to underscore um, how important urban heat is um, to really understand, especially in a city like Nashville. Um, Chrissy spoke to, you know, the fact that that heat tends to get trapped in our urban environments um, based on how they've developed and grown over time. And so um, we understand that we need to better understand um, what heat distribution looks like across the city, but then also take steps to mitigate those impacts, um, particularly as it relates to um, affected communities and, and the disproportionate impacts that they may feel. Um, so this summer, as you noted, we're going to be embarking upon a heat mapping campaign in partnership with NOAA and Kappa Strategies and um, various other local partners that we're really excited to be teaming with. And essentially what we're going to be doing is attaching sensors to vehicles uh, that collect temperature and humidity information um, in thousands of locations across the city. Um, and so that helps us to identify what areas of the city are the warmest um, and then which may be cooler. So you talked about driving, um, you know, from perhaps a more suburban area to a more urban area and seeing that temperature change, um, hopefully through driving on um, 12 different routes across the city will be able to collect those temperatures and piece together a map um, that looks at, um, again, the difference in temperature and humidity across those different locations. Um, and so what that'll help us do is understand heat distribution. Um, and then we can start using that to strategically inform heat mitigation efforts. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about what that could look later today. Um, but those could be natural resource-based interventions or um, interventions to the built environment, um, or it could be a response and adaptation efforts. Um, you know, it could be used by public health officials, um, environmental officials, nonprofits, urban planners, um, and, and community volunteers. So we're really, really excited um, at, at, at how collecting this information will help us do that. One of the things that I think is really unique about this campaign is the way that the data is being mapped first off by volunteers using these sensors on their cars, but also really looking at this at a smaller and finer scale. You know, we might think about heat kind of at this big scale. How hot is it in Nashville? How hot is it at the airport? But why is it so important to look at, at heat at this small scale? And um, Carol, I was thinking maybe you could chime in a little bit about, you know, how people are experiencing this heat, how that is impacting um, their health and their well-being. Well, sure. And thank you so much for having me. Um, I think the main thing is that the most vulnerable people are most dramatically impacted, obviously, right? So people at extremes of age, they're very old, they're very young, people with comorbid conditions. So people who already have heart disease, um, pulmonary diseases like asthma, COPD are most dramatically impacted. And in Nashville, people who don't have air conditioning. So anyone who's experiencing homelessness, 
um, low-income communities, typically low-income communities of color. Um, you know, in a lot of these communities, many of the families don't have air conditioning in their homes. And if you think about how hot it's been, that heat is deadly. I know Chrissy spoke to the importance of cooling down at night. And for humans, that's really important. So it's really important that if you're stressed during the day, at night, your body has a chance to kind of cool down uh, for recovery. And so I don't have data from this last sort of insane heat wave we've had, but I'm sure that what will come out in the next few months is likely an increase in death rates, morbidity uh, from people experiencing just exposure to extreme heat. The other thing I think is also really important to state is that a lot of these people who are in, experiencing the impact really contribute very little to carbon emissions, relatively speaking, right? So families that take the bus everywhere, they live very densely um, in apartments. And so um, there's also that justice piece that I think is important to highlight. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it, I think a lot of times people, you know, heat seems like a nuisance, like, oh, it's really hot this week, you know, uh, but it's deadly. It's extremely deadly. And it might not seem to have sort of the same sensationalism that we see around, um, you know, hurricanes and flooding, but it is a very deadly impact um, of our weather. Um, now, Mikhail, when we think about this data more from the natural resources side and how we're looking at extreme heat, how does this really micro level of looking at kind of extreme heat hotspots help inform, you know, where we might do some of those mitigation or adaptation efforts like Kendra said? I think the patterns of development that cause the urban heat island are, are also the most sustainable. So we want to see density. We want to see, um, you know, people living along transit lines. We don't want sprawl. Um, we want to preserve open space. So, so there's really this area that needs to um, be addressed um, of mitigating the urban heat island effect. So the, the solution is not for everybody to move out of the hot city. The solution is to, to figure out how to reduce the heat in the city. And there are a lot of things um, that, that we can try to do. It's not as easy as building correctly in the first place, but of course, you know, trees and green space, um, um, adding those back in, retrofitting, um, you know, old industrial spaces and making sure that as we redevelop industrial spaces, we're including a lot of green space. Um, and then, um, and then new development, make sure that that we're not that we're not covering it all with asphalt that's just going to cause this heat reverberation. It's interesting the way you identify sort of the contradiction of we want density in some ways, and then we need to also be able to live with density and be able to be in these dense places and not experience that extreme heat. And I think there's a lot of nuance to sort of that approach. It's so much about um, intentionally developing because I, I find that the Cumberland River Compact a lot of times is going in and trying to fix things that were that were done wrong or done you know, a long time ago when we thought it was the right thing to do, but it's not the right thing to do anymore. And it's, you know, um, not laying that extra thousand feet of asphalt down is a lot easier than us getting volunteers out there and depaving a thousand feet of asphalt. Yeah, I know another podcast that we had with Dr. Jeremy Hoffman, who did a lot of research on the connections between 
urban trees, urban heat and redlining, you know, he had this statement that, you know, we are living with the consequences of a decision that was made decades ago. So we know that what we do today is going to have implications for decades to come. So Carol, like you had mentioned earlier, you know, when we look at heat across the city, some people have access to air conditioning, have access to ways to really be able to personally mitigate the impacts of urban heat. But we know that that is not um, true for all residents of our city. So, um, and, and David, I kind of wanted to direct this question to you. Could you kind of explain how, you know, different communities and different people in our city might be disproportionately impacted by these extreme heat events? When we um, looked at the uh, city itself, and I think I, early on in the process, I create a map uh, where we uh, pull down some of the um, um, urban hotspot data and looked at it based upon demographics. Uh, and it's easy to see that in the inner city, uh, less tree-lined or, or less tree-present parts of the city where we have much more impervious and uh, human-made surfaces that that's where we found the hotspots. Uh, and so you can, and it's not so much that it gets hot, but when there's no cooling at night, you know, that's when people get into trouble. And so, yes, if people don't have air conditioning and if you have disproportionate numbers of elderly people um, who uh, aren't, don't have the opportunity to have that cool down. Let's say it's a day like today where it's 100 degrees Fahrenheit, feels like temperature, and maybe it only gets down to 85 degrees Fahrenheit uh, at night. Uh, whereas, you know, the preference would be for it to get down to 75 or 78 degrees Fahrenheit at night. But if, if it's still in the mid 80s at night, then there's no relief, and it's it's easy for people to um, uh, suddenly succumb to uh, heat-related heat illnesses because it happens, you know, very fast um, if you ever had that happening before. Yeah, so kind of on that point, you know, what, what are the warning signs that people should be looking for with things like heat stroke or heat exhaustion? You know, what, what should people be on the lookout for? Sure. So the things there's, there's two, well, there's a few levels. So one is heat exhaustion, and then that can kind of go into heat stroke. And with heat exhaustion, the early signs are like a headache. Uh, people can feel dizziness. They might appear to be confused. They may experience like loss of appetite, nausea, feeling sick, um, excessive sweating, which I think David mentioned, like pale, clammy skin. And then if people can start to develop cramps in their extremities, typically maybe in their stomach, um, their rate of respiration can increase, their pulse rate can increase. And then when the temperature starts to fluctuate, then we get into um, more like heat stroke level. And so, and people can rapidly obviously die from that. Um, the other thing I think is we don't do a good job of linking heat related and climate related health outcomes back to climate, right? So I don't know that when someone goes to an ER, I don't know that when, if they die from heat stroke, how that's necessarily coded. They may code it as, as something else. So we don't have really good data on heat related illness. And then something else I wanted to mention, and I'm sorry that I'm non sequitur a little bit here, but when you asked me about vulnerabilities, a population I did not mention is people who work outdoors. So about 30% of people employed in our state work in vulnerable sectors, which is you know construction, um, agriculture, 
first responders. So people that are in, you know, I didn't, my UPS driver asked him the other day if he had AC, he doesn't have AC in his truck. So there are all these people that are exposed all day long. And then several people have mentioned, you know, in the evening when they get home, if they don't have AC, they can't cool down. It's really, really dramatically stressing people. Yeah. And I think that livelihood component is so big when we think about urban heat, because it's, it's people working outside. I mean, we could probably all walk outside where we are right now and find somebody that is landscaping, building a new building, whatever it happens to be. And like you said, those people are exposed during the day and then they might be exposed at night as well, um, you know, to those impacts. Well, you know, I, I think she made a good point about we don't have very good statistics on whether on heat illnesses or heat weather related fatalities, because the big thing is, you know, you can attribute to something else, whether it's a heart attack or or stroke. And oftentimes there's just not a good database for us to really, you know, hone in on that type of data, which is incredibly important. So, you know, really we, we only hear about heat related illnesses and deaths when we're in really, really significant heat waves. And I think, yeah, all the attentions to the big time heat waves, but you know, heat, and heat illnesses can strike at any time when it's hot outside. Uh, you see a lot of uh, the, the heat-related illnesses occur, you know, the beginning of the season and at the end of the season. So, um, you know, the statistics just aren't very good, but they're good enough to know that heat is the number one weather-related killer in the United States. To, to add on to that, um, in addition to obviously knowing that it's a huge risk, right, um, and we've talked a lot about disproportionate impact to, to communities of color um, that come with that. For Nashville in particular, and, and Chrissy can tell me if I'm wrong, extreme heat is predicted to be one of our more significant weather threats over time. It's going to be exacerbated as climate change happens. I think both in sort of the um, acute um, episodic nature, but also in, in, in terms of chronic impact. And so this is something that we're going to need to grapple with. And, and again, it's going to become kind of part of our fabric. And so really developing effective mitigation strategies um, is, is, is important. Uh, Kendra, you're right. You know, people around here always concentrate on tornadoes. Tornadoes are the biggest threats. That's the biggest threat to, to people. And I think as we realize with climate change, I think we're going to shift from, you know, focusing so much on tornadoes to more of the heat, more of the flash flooding, these types of events that, you know, have been significant challenges in our past, but they're going to be brought to the forefront here in the future. I think one other area that we haven't touched on that, that I'm not a, a very well versed, but one is mental health. And so the impact that heat has on people's mental health and how those exacerbations. And then another area, when you spoke to economic costs, is there's really good data that shows as heat increases, community violence increases is across the globe. So, um, and it's again, it's hard to cause that or to link that to a causation. Um, but that's also data that's that is continuously growing is this effect of heat on mental health and conflict. Yeah, those things are so important. And I saw something recently as there's all these heat waves going on right now. And, you know, obviously here, but also especially in Europe right now, very, a lot of focus and media attention around that. And a lot of times the imagery used in media when we talk about a heat wave is some kids playing in a fountain, right? Like, oh, it's hot. The kids are outside playing in a fountain and we're not showing, you know, these 
impacts on people's livelihood. We're not showing an impacts on mental health, on community violence, on, you know, disease and death. And so I think, you know, shifting the, the focus to be able to, you know, show heat as the impact that it can be and, and really help people start to see, you know, this is something that has that prolonged impact. Like you were talking about Kendra, you know, with this over time, it's not this sort of short duration we see with a tornado, but it's really that prolonged impact that we're, we're going to see. Now, obviously urban heat is something that has been, you know, Nashville's always been hot. The Southeast has been hot. So there is things that we, you know, in the city that they have been working on to mitigate some of these impacts. So Kendra, could you talk a little bit about some of the efforts that the city has in place now to mitigate the impacts of urban heat? Yeah, that's a great point, Catherine. Um, so I think it kind of spans and runs runs the gamut, um, but it's definitely an area as a city where I think we need to um, be incredibly thoughtful and strategic moving forward, but also amplify the efforts that we're um, taking. So, um, you know, in terms of strategies that we're already engaging in um, or could amplify or emphasize or increase um, based on additional heat mapping data would be things like increased education and outreach on heat risks and heat equity issues. So we've just finished talking about, again, how this is kind of a downplayed issue or something that, you know, crops up occasionally, um, you know, during the, the, the August season, um, but, but isn't something that people are truly understanding and and, and thinking about how it impacts their life. Um, also increasing trees and vegetative cover. Um, so trying to create most, more of those green spaces that again can help um, bring down um, that herbit, urban eat, uh, heat effect and provide some shade. Um, creating green or cool roofs. So that would again be um, sort of more of a um, engineering approach um, to trying to create some spaces that again mitigate that urban heat island effect. Use of cool pavements. Um, also looking at, um, you know, expanded or enhanced creation of cooling or hydration centers. So creating spaces who may not have, um, for folks who may not have access to air conditioning um, or um, temperature controlled environments to come and, and get some relief. Um, increased deployment of early warning systems. So trying to prepare the public um, if we are going to see, um, you know, um, in, intense heat coming, um, rather responding than in the moment. Um, and then also encourage of energy conservation measures. So those are just a few ideas of, again, um, some of these things we're already doing, um, and then there's obviously always room for, for improvement moving forward. And like you said, there's a lot of different approaches to mitigating it, right? There are some of these that are addressing sort of the root cause of those urban heat issues, and then there's making sure that people have what they need you know, for this heat wave, the next heat wave, and so on. And I know you and it has to be a combination of both, right? We can't just yep. do one and expect it to, to solve the problem. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And I think you mentioned tree planting and that's something that, you know, the Cumberland River Compact is part of with the Root Nashville campaign. I think a lot of times people see that as, you know, sort of the, the answer to a lot of these urban heat questions is, you know, let's plant trees, but of course, those take a long time to mature and to have those benefits. So Mikhail, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how urban heat factors into tree planting efforts through Route Nashville and then kind of what the benefits of those trees look like short term and then in the long term as well. Sure. Um, the, we, we take a lot of the mapping that Dr. Paget has talked about, the, heat, the mapping of the hotspots in the city and prioritize planting trees in those neighborhoods, planting trees in the public right of way, um, which is just, just off the street edge so that the street is shaded is also a priority of ours. 
um, if if we can keep the streets cool, we can reduce the the urban heat island effect as well. So um, we're 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 looking at the mapping. We're trying to um, focus on areas that have have a below normal um, urban tree canopy, which also co coincides, you know, not surprisingly with everything else. Um, um, factors of vulnerability. Um, so, so that's our effort in the, you know, in the short term, I think, uh, the, the tree planting campaign builds community, um, because we've got neighborhood tree captains out there talking to their neighbors. And I actually was in Chicago in 1996 when that deadly, deadly heat wave occurred. And, um, one of the, the things in studying that heat wave, um, and all the deaths was that people were isolated in their homes without air conditioning and um, and they, you know, they died because they were afraid to, you know, go outside they and their neighbors didn't check on them. So I think as we get into these prolonged periods of heat, um, you know, building community is can be one of the most important things we can do, because if we can build community then we can get people to the cooling centers. So um, there is a physical aspect of planting trees, but there's very much a social aspect of building stronger communities, building stronger community networks. And, and I think that in the short term, when they're before the tree's too tall to provide a lot of shade, we're strengthening the community. I love that. It's a great way to look at that sort of layers of these mitigation efforts, like Kendra talked about. There's sort of the short-term things we've got to do, have those cooling centers open. There's building that community. There's planting the trees. There's, you know, not adding more pavement, removing pavement that's no longer necessary, sort of layering all of these things kind of together to address urban heat. So let's get back to the campaign just a little bit, because I know all of us are sort of involved in the campaign process in a little different ways here and there um, coming up in August. And so there's a few different parts of the campaign. One of them is figuring out where we should go and map. We've talked about sort of understanding that some areas of our city are hotter than others. Some people experience more urban heat than others. So what is going into determining where we are going to map the urban heat through the campaign? So we're trying to consider a variety of different factors um, through identification of what we're calling places of interest. And um, don't overthink that terminology other than where might you be curious to understand what temperature and humidity looks like um, at various points throughout the day. Um, and so in that thought process, we've asked for our incredible project planning team to kind of help us brainstorm those places of interest across Nashville and Davidson County. We actually get the opportunity to map 100 square miles miles um, of the county. Obviously, our county is much bigger than that. So um, we're going through the process of refining that study area. But what we're really looking at is um, different places that may be used in different ways by the public. Um, so we're going to want some green spaces in there. We're also going to want some, um, you know, intensely urbanized area that may not have access to green spaces, um, perhaps community centers. We're also factoring demographics um, into the locations that we're mapping so that we get um, a broad representation um, of the city and all the diversity um, that's that's represented across, um, across the county. Um, and so really the end goal is again, to have a lot of variation in the different locations that we'll be mapping. Um, so we're going to have 12 different routes that 
basically wind their way to touch as many of these places of interest as possible. We also have schools, community centers, various businesses, um, special event locations where hundreds of people may come to congregate for, um, for a special event. Um, and so again, trying to find that variation so we can understand that differential that we were talking about earlier on the podcast that may be created um, by um, either built infrastructure or natural infrastructure. I know this gives us a good baseline for you know, this year for 2022, is there any effort to maybe repeat this in five, 10 years, look at kind of how that urban heat is changing over time? I think there's a ton of interest in doing so. Um, and I think we'll also learn a lot uh, from this initial go round of mapping. Um, so we've really had numerous great conversations as a planning team about, oh gosh, if we had more time or could plan um, for mapping a larger area um, or you know slight modifications to our methodological approach, what would that look like? And so I'm really confident that with this um, interdisciplinary project team, we'll have opportunities to explore that in the future. Um, as we alluded to earlier, climate change is really increasing um, temperature and extreme heat. And so um, I think there would be great value in continuing this mapping effort and, and revisiting in a few years in the future to understand how things have changed. Great. Well, I am really looking forward to this campaign and I'm excited that the city of Nashville is one of the cities that is that is participating this year. There are several across the United States. And so you, we have a lot of um, friends in different cities that are working on this and sharing information and, you know, sharing kind of the findings so we can slowly but surely get a better idea across all of these urban areas. So just as we close today, um, is there anything about urban heat or extreme weather that you all want to add in that we haven't had a chance to talk about? I think in terms of uh, education, uh, this is an opportunity to perhaps get more um, Black, Indigenous, people of color, communities uh, actually interested in uh, climate change and uh, global warming, let's just say it. Uh, because in general, uh, the climate change issue is often presented with uh, sea level rise, um, icebergs melting, and the polar bear suffering. Uh, last time I checked, I didn't see a whole lot of polar bears, icebergs, or no coastal areas in North Nashville. And so when the issue is presented in the traditional way, there's not a whole lot of attention. Um, but uh, in my experience, when you connect pediatric asthma to global warming, then people start to pay attention in these communities. You know, then people will step up and say, oh yeah, I think uh, I'll, I'll volunteer for this urban heat allergy program. So I think as uh, bad as things are, um, I think this does offer an opportunity for us to get, you know, broaden the, um, the diversity of individuals who are, who are interested in atmospheric science, uh, even in terms of getting young people, um, in terms of African-Americans, we, the STEM field where we're most underrepresented is earth science. And so in order for us to have more earth scientists, atmospheric scientists working in our communities, we have to first get people's attention. My, my mother taught for 40 years. She said, before I can teach you anything, I have to get your attention first. And I think this issue will get people's attention who aren't traditionally uh, engaged in this area of science. David makes a great point. And, you know, I think, like I said, around here, 
you know, people can visualize tornadoes, people can visualize tornado destruction, right? We've lived it, we've seen it, you know, even recently. People can visualize flash floods and flooding. People have a really hard time visualizing on how heat can impact them and how it will impact us in the future. And I think we've got to, you know, get in the community, start, you know, kids out at a young age, getting them to understand the impacts of climate change are real and can be very significant. And now's the time to, to plan and prepare and you know, spread knowledge about what is happening um, that could potentially impact Middle Tennessee. I think I also think of two other A words, and I don't want to put David on the spot, but air quality is one. Um, and I know David has a project now that's really looking at air quality in the community because heat makes air quality worse, right? So that then relates back to asthma and um, is dramatic. And the other one that may sound funny, but is alligators. So I was on the, the TWRA website and Tennessee is expected to either, it either currently has or will have alligators. And I think that speaks to just the change in vectors and vector ecology that the heat is bringing. So the increased season of say ticks and mosquitoes are two that I know we think of in Tennessee and the illnesses and diseases that that brings is another thing that we, especially in healthcare, are looking at down the road, um, you know, Chagas disease and all, all these other illnesses that um, that are often undetected and, and take a long time to diagnose some people, Lyme disease. So we're going to see a lot more of this in our population as well. And to the A's, you, you have to add armadillos too. Um, okay, so I'm going to stay on brand and just be a little optimistic here. Um, what we have is a really abundant supply of fresh water. And so if we build a more resilient city, it's, it's also gonna be a more beautiful city. So it's an incredible opportunity for us to green up spaces, um, kind of merge the difference between urban and rural. Um, I was listening to a TED talk this morning that said that there's more biodiversity for bees in urban areas than suburban areas. And I think we just need to embrace that and just plant the heck out of our city. And whether it's trees or pollinators or roofs and, and embrace this opportunity to, to bring nature back into our cities. And again, when you look at the the co-benefits that come from that, um, again, we 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 spoke about you know community building, mental health, public safety. Um, it's really a win-win-win-win-win, right? Um, and and so I think thinking strategically and bringing all those partners to the table to help execute on those strategies um, is is something each of us can do. So. Well, I think that sets us for a great vision of where we're going, right? This urban heat mapping campaign is one small part of figuring out, you know, where we can go next with all of this, envisioning that climate resilient future that is inclusive, that's equitable, that, you know, provides for both the people and the, you know, um, plants and animals that live in this area as well. So the campaign is still looking for volunteers. So if you are interested in volunteering, we'll have information about signing up to volunteer. And then once the National Weather Service, Christy and her team give us a week, we're gonna have a week in August that we will be out there collecting this data. You can really be a part of it. You can see what goes into collecting scientific data. Like um, Dr. Paget said, really understanding what goes into geoscience into this work. And so we're very excited for you all to participate in it and to help us envision this future together. 
So I think you all have had a chance to share about what you're most excited about for this campaign, but does anyone have anything else that they're excited about for this specific campaign? I think as the scientist, the meteorologist, I'm excited about the data, the data, data, data. And uh, we are looking forward to seeing the results and getting people interested and excited about, you know, the, the physical science, the, the weather, and uh, maybe a little bit of education in there too. Chrissy stole my thunder. I think what I'm most excited about is um, having an opportunity to really elevate this conversation, perhaps with different audiences that may not already be interested in the topic, and then also to educate. Um, you know, I think uh, others on the call today have shared again the importance of educating on on this topic um, and how it can affect different populations um, really eloquently. And so we have a real opportunity to, to educate the general public, but also specific populations um, that um, unfortunately may be disproportionately impacted by, by heat effects. Well, I can say I'm very excited to participate as a volunteer. When, we, when I heard that we were even thinking about doing this, I was like, already sign me up. And I'm also excited because I know that I'll probably be out and about in our, my everyday life. And I'm sure you all will too. And you'll see somebody with that little sensor on their car driving their route and you'll be like, oh, I know what they're doing. So I'm really excited for just the way that people are gonna wonder like, what is that car doing? And that will spur a lot of conversation. Well, thank you all so much for first your work on this campaign, um, Kendra, for you know leading this at, from the city of Nashville and everyone else really you know coming together and bringing our expertise and our passions to this project. And then thank you all for joining me today to talk more about urban heat, to share about why this work is so important, how people can get involved and what we envision for the future. Thank you to all of our guests for joining us today on River Talks. If you'd like to learn more about the campaign and get involved, you can visit our blog at cumberlandrivercompact.org blog. There you'll find more information about our speakers, resources mentioned today, and of course, how you can get involved.